0: You think I'm preaching too hard, you have lost your mind. Let us read the word of God a few passages from Old and New Testament. Reading first in Ezekiel chapter twenty two and I shall read at verse twenty three. Ezekiel 22, in the 23rd verse. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto her, Thou art the land that is not cleansed, nor rained upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof. Like a roaring lion ravening the prey, they have devoured souls, they have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane, neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean, and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves, ravening the prey, to shed blood, and to destroy souls, and to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity, and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. In Malachi chapter 2, we have the words that are written on a memorial stone to Jonathan Edwards in the First Church in Northampton, Massachusetts. The words are these. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips he walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the first five verses. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power thus far. I think if we could all be able to speak of our personal lives together, there would be certain dates... That would stand out. Perhaps the time of our conversion, perhaps the date of our marriage, perhaps the death of some dear family member. But for Christians, as we were saying last night in the discussion, there are other dates that stand out. And among those dates, so often has been the date when we were led to an author. That did something to our lives so that we weren't the same again. Many Christians have written that in connection with the man whose birth we are commemorating, born 300 years ago. 22nd of June, in the year 1832, Robert Murray McChain wrote in his diary, I bought Jonathan Edwards' works. It's a date. He never forgot the books were his companions for the rest of his comparatively short life. One day in the year 1929, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was waiting for a train in Cardiff in South Wales. He found that he had time to spare, and as pastors are inclined to do, he made his way to a second-hand bookshop, the shop of John Evans. And he wrote that down on his knees in a corner of the shop wearing his heavy overcoat as usual, there he said, I found the two-volume 1834 edition of Edwards which I bought for five shillings. I devoured these volumes and literally just read and read them. And other lives could be similarly quoted that remembered this date. Now, Robert Murray McChain, when he started to read Edwards and to read Edwards' life, had an experience that it, it may be we've all had. It can be quite discouraging to read or to hear the biography of another Christian. McChain wrote, How feeble does my spark of Christianity appear? Beside such a sun. But then he went on to say. But. But even his was a borrowed light. And the same source is still open to me. And that changes the whole perspective, doesn't it? If Jonathan Edwards could speak to us. He would tell us that we're wasting time to look at the borrowed light. We must go to the source And that is what we are seeking to do together, are we not, in these few days. If you look at Edwards from the the wrong standpoint, everything is wrong. Some people look at him in terms of a great 18th century figure, thinker, writer, preacher. And that's as far as they go. But we have to look at Edwards first of all as a sinner who by the grace of God was made a Christian and then called to be a minister of the Word of God. We have to see Edwards as a member of the Kingdom of Christ and a teacher of divine revelation. And when we come to him in that way We find something that is abiding and permanent. Edward said, the wisdom of God was not given for any particular age, but for all ages. That's what justifies surely our meeting. I like the story of something that happened in Stockbridge in the year 1870. About 200 of Edward's descendants had met for commemoration. And uh, we read that it was a charming afternoon, with polite addresses given, and tea was drunk, and uh, all was pleasant. But there was one man there who was not at all comfortable in this situation, and his name was Irenaeus Prime. And because one speaker couldn't come, Dr. Prime was given an opportunity to give a short address, And this is the gist of what he said. He said, It's no good making a mere bow to past history. What Edwards preached is relevant to every age. Quote, It has the life of Christ in it. It subordinates reason to divine authority and adores the Holy Spirit. His theology has revivals and repentance and salvation from hell in it. And this made it, he said, and makes it and will keep it, divine theology till Christ is all in all. And suddenly, I think, the pleasant afternoon at Stockbridge came to life. So we have to look at Edward's life Man and the Legacy. He was born about 70 years after the Puritans had first colonized what became New England. Lived the first, seven year, the first 12 years of his life with his father, Timothy. Mother, Esther Edwards. His father was the pastor of the church at East Windsor, close to the Connecticut River. pastor was a faithful Man, good student, part-time teacher, part-time farmer, mother, busy as all mothers. She had four girls, and then she had Jonathan, and then she had another six girls. And these girls, it is said, were all six foot in height, and so the local people used to talk about the 60 feet of Mr. Edwards' girls' They were certainly a large family. And besides the immediate circle, there was a larger family circle. His grandfathers, both of them were still alive. They had been born in the 1640s. They were representatives of the old Puritan age. One of them, as you may well know, was Solomon Stoddart, who was a minister of the church at Northampton, the largest church, it is said, in New England. Edwards had a happy childhood, healthy childhood, a lot of feminine company to look after him as a boy. When he was not quite 13, he went downriver to the uh, collegiate school of Connecticut, which became very soon after Yale College at New Haven. Two years after he had started at Wethersfield, they went to New Haven and the famous Yale College was thus started. In the year 1720, when he had completed his BA studies, it was decided that he would go forward for another two years to study his Master of Arts degree. The next year, the spring of 1721, and he was 17 years old, came the great turning point in his life. He had always been religious. He had made as he said, a number of resolutions. But the truth was that his natural pride had never been humbled and his heart had never been changed. But in the spring of 1721, he says, I was brought to a new sense of things, to an inward sweet delight in God and divine things, quite different from anything I had ever experienced before I began to have a new kind of apprehension and idea of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him he went home that summer of 1721 and there's a beautiful passage in his writing in which he describes how everything seemed so different even walking in the fields around their home things weren't the same as I was walking there, and looking up, he says, to the sky and clouds, there came into my mind so sweet a sense of the majesty and grace of God that I know not how to express. I seem to see them both in a sweet conjunction of holy majesty and majestic meekness, a high and great and holy gentleness in creation. And simultaneously at this time, there was born in his heart his lifelong concern for the advance, for the promotion of the kingdom of Christ. Before concluding his MA studies, a change of direction came. He was invited to go to New York to supply an infant Presbyterian congregation and happily he went and We have now in the Yale edition of Edwards' works some of the sermons he preached when he was only 18 or 19 years of age. They are remarkably mature sermons. But for some reason his father wasn't happy with having him so far away. I think he thought his preparation was not yet complete. So, 1723, when he was 20 years of age, um, Edwards is back in Connecticut. And in 1724 to 1726, he is acting as a tutor at Yale College. 1726 came a great milestone. His grandfather, Solomon Stoddart, at Northampton, was now 83 years of age in great need of an assistant. Thoughts turned to this young man in New Haven. So, 1726, Jonathan Edwards joined his grandfather, The next year, he was confirmed as pastor alongside him. In the meantime, something even more important had happened. As teenagers, he had fallen in love with a young lady in New Haven, Sarah Pairpoint. And they married in the summer of 1727. She was 17 years old. She wore a green satin brocade dress and uh, I have to tell you now that I'm only giving you not even half of Edward's life this morning because at least half of the life is made up of Sarah and to get that half you're going to have to listen to the tape by Mrs. Piper this afternoon if you're not present at that session Sarah Edwards is a good half of Edward's whole life So they settled in a house on a rural lane in Northampton, which later became King Street. Northampton was a town of about 200 houses, about 1,000 or more people, men, women, children. Uh, The first settlers who went there were all given four acres of land each. They shared common pasture as well. When Edward settled, they were given 10 acres, reflecting his position as a minister in the town And so they settled down for what was to be 23 years of labour in Northampton. First seven years, hard work, much happiness. First child was born in 1728 and uh, was followed soon by others. There were eight daughters and three sons. But as Edwards came to know the congregation, something gave him increasing concern. His grandfather had been the minister there for upwards of 60 years and perhaps inevitably on account of his age. But Northampton had come, the congregation, to settle on its eminent reputation. Edwards did not find the spiritual state of the congregation what he had anticipated. His grandfather died in 1729 and so Edwards had the whole charge of the congregation. It's quite clear from his sermons that he came to believe there were numbers present. Of course, there was only one church in the town and everybody in Northampton literally went to church. He came to believe that there were many nominal believers. Listen to a sentence or two from him. He says... Some speaking of some who were present they come to meeting from one sabbath to another and hear God's word but all that can be said to them won't awaken them won't persuade them to take pains that they may be saved and often he feared these people weren't even listening they are he says gazing about the assembly minding this and other person that is there or they are thinking of their worldly business This situation changed quite suddenly in 1734. A great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world became universal in all parts of the town. The world was only a thing by the by. Edwards believed that some 300 people hopefully had been converted within six months. His hope was that the greater part of persons in this town, above 16 years of age, are such as have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. For months, the meeting house was filled with praise, with anxious souls, with men and women coming to profession of saving faith. Edwards wrote a letter to Benjamin Coleman in Boston about what had happened. Coleman wrote back and asked him, could he make it larger? And when Edwards made it larger, Coleman sent the letter to London and it was published as the title that was mentioned last night, A Narrative of Surprising Conversions. The book was widely read. Wesley read it, Whitfield read it, and it instantly made Edwards and Northampton, people that figured on the world stage. It had some consequence that hadn't been anticipated. It had perhaps more than one consequence, and they weren't all positive. One negative consequence was this. Solomon Stoddart, the grandfather, had 12 children. They all married, many of them to other clergy, and a large part of the descendants were married to the Williams family. For one reason or another at this time a sort of family disagreement arose between the Williams and Edwards it would appear that the sudden celebrity of this young man perhaps did not go well with some of the other larger family. At any rate the fact is that from about the time of the publication of this book Onwards, Edwards had difficulty from some of the wider family circle. We'll come back to that. But uh, the sort of thing that happened was that uh, when difficulties arose in the congregation, there were family members, not actually in the congregation, but quite nearby, that uh, didn't help, to put it mildly. Well, you know, revivals don't last. Edwards says they're special seasons of mercy. And after the revival of 1734-35, events uh, returned more to normal in Northampton. The usual pastoral difficulties arose, some discouragement to Edwards. There was an element of party strife in the town that had gone on for some while and uh, kept reappearing this went on with ups and downs until 1740 in that year you may recall one historian says like a clear bolt out of a like a sudden bolt out of a clear blue sky there came the great awakening concern spiritual hunger Not simply in Northampton, it didn't begin in Northampton, but it spread from different points down the eastern seaboard. It was said in Boston that such was the consciousness of God and the fear of God that you could have left bars of gold on the pavement and no one would have moved them. The Great Awakening, 1740 to 1742. And Edwards was at the heart of it in New England, preaching, preaching, Travelling, itinerating, writing letters, going to New Haven, producing books. He talks about his prodigious labours. Somebody thought he'd be dead before he was 40 years old. It is amazing what he was able to do. Two of his most important books came out of that time, The Distinguishing Marks of the Work of a Spirit of God and his thoughts on the revival In New England. Let me give you a sentence. He said, God is pleased sometimes in dealing forth spiritual blessings to his people, in some respects to exceed the capacity of the vessel in its present scantiness, so that he not only fills it, but he makes their cup run over. It has been with the disciples of Christ for a long season. A time of great emptiness on spiritual accounts. They have gone hungry and have been toiling in vain during a dark night of the church. As it was with the disciples of old, Luke 5. But now, but now the morning being come, Jesus appears to his disciples and gives them such an abundance of food that they are not able to draw their net. Yea, yea, so that their nets break. And the vessel is overloaded. That's his picture of the Great Awakening. They had been toiling, preaching faithfully. God, in his mercy, revived the church. And the nets broke. And the vessels, the ships, could hardly hold what came in. So, it was a time of great blessing. Now, in that connection, I must throw in a few words about Edwards as a preacher. You know, the tradition is, or at least in some circles I should say, the tradition has been that Edwards preached holding a candle in one hand and reading like this from his manuscript in the other. It's my conviction that that picture is pure legend and that it has arisen because some people foolishly thought it would emphasize the supernatural. Can you imagine a man reading a manuscript, holding a candle, and hundreds of people being moved? Well, you might not be able to imagine that. And I have to tell you, you don't need to try. <laughs> because uh, that, that is not what happened. There are a few eyewitnesses to Edwards' preaching, and they tell us very clearly that that's not what they saw. One member of the congregation said it was Mr. Edwards' habit to look straightforward when he preached. Someone else speaking similarly said he looked at the bell rope. He certainly wasn't squinting at a bit of paper. And what we know of others who write about his preaching and his own words say the same thing. Edwards says that preaching is for the impressing of divine things on the heart's and affections of men. And it is by the lively application of the word to men in preaching that God builds his church. Samuel Hopkins, who heard him often, said, His words often discovered a great deal of inward fervor, without much noise or external emotion, and fell with great weight on the minds of his hearers. He made little motion with head or hands, but spoke so as to discover the motion of his heart. And Edwards says, He who would set the hearts of other men on fire with the love of Christ must himself burn with love. So the idea that Edwards somehow stood in the pulpit with paper pressed up to his eye and people had to listen patiently to him reading is not, I say an accurate picture at all. How does his preaching differ from what is so common today? Briefly, let me just say, firstly, he had a better understanding of human nature. He believed that evangelism has to start where God starts. And God starts with conviction of sin. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Better understanding of human nature. And following that, Edward's preaching, I think, differs so much from what is common today by the emphasis in it on the wonder of the love of God. You see, it's only as we know our real sinfulness that we can begin to appreciate the marvel of the love of God. And the marvel of the love of God runs through Edward's preaching. And the third last characteristic of his preaching I would mention is the evidence that went with it of the anointing and the authority of the Holy Spirit. And this is where I think it's sad the way some people write about Edwards. They want to know what were, her, what were his techniques, what were his methods as a revivalist. They think there's some kind of secret in the man that explains how he was so Effective, And the answer is that Edwards, as the Apostle Paul, preached in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, depending on the demonstration and the power of the Holy Spirit. One old writer, Thomas Murphy, writing in the 19th century, he puts his finger exactly on the right point. He says, Explaining the Great Awakening it wasn't in terms of the personalities of the preachers, but as a wonderful baptism of the Holy Spirit. The church, he says, was orthodox before. She is now imbued with a life and energy that was irresistible. And speaking of Edwards and his colleagues, they were men who believed in refreshings from on high. They felt Some of them in their own souls, and they were ready for still more. Well, I can't take more time on Edwards as a preacher, but that is a great theme, and uh, don't uh, be careful to examine everything that's said on that subject. Well, as you know, times of blessing are often followed by difficulties, and after the Great Awakening, Edwards faced two major difficulties. The first was this. In the wider life of New England, there were cold-hearted clergy who were never sympathetic with the awakening. But in the course of time, they began to express their criticisms. And their criticisms were along this line. They said, the trouble with this situation is that people are being... Manipulated by preaching that aims not at their reason, but simply at their emotions. There's a hysteria abroad. People's imaginations are overheated, they said. And a lot of excitement and hysteria has just stirred up congregations. Now, unhappily, there were certain things that gave some credibility to that criticism. There were those who believed they were friends of the revival, and indeed they were active in it, who behaved so foolishly and unwisely that they brought discredit on everything that was happening. They gave fuel to the critics. Who were these people? Well, they believed, these people believed, that the way to judge the Holy Spirit's work is by the sensational if somebody should collapse on the floor or someone should shout something extraordinary should happen the more sensational the more evidence of the spirit's power you know when that idea comes in it can spread very quickly we're all like sheep in spiritual things and uh, that idea began to take hold so excitement of an unspiritual nature did appear and wildfire, and fanaticism. And here was Jonathan Edwards now caught between two fronts. On the one hand, these cold critics, clergy and some others, and on the other, fanatics, people with zeal, yes, and sometimes good people, but zeal without knowledge. And Edwards, in his writings, as was mentioned last night, was seeking to deal with with both sides. In addition to that, there's something that happens in every true revival that we need to be aware of. In addition to the saving work of the Spirit of God by which many are truly converted, there is always what the Puritans called a common work. That is to say, people get a taste of eternal things. They become serious Their lives change, but they've never fundamentally become Christians. And after a while, this common work of the Spirit doesn't remain with them. They go back to the world or back to formal religion. That happens in every revival. Edwards wrote these words sadly when he came to realize that even in Northampton, The converts were not as many as he had first hoped. It is, he says, it is with professors of religion, especially such as become so in time of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. It is as it is with the blossoms in spring. There are vast numbers of them upon the trees, which all look fair and promising, but yet many of them never come to anything. So the first difficulty was the opposition to the revival and the need to defend the truth of the work of God. The second difficulty was much more local and in the end, I suppose, it was more painful. I mentioned some of the wider family that uh, were no help to Edwards. In the 1740s, there were problems that arose in the church has arise in every church but these problems were definitely fomented by some sometimes as I say cousins and members of family and these came to a head on this issue Solomon Stoddard believed that people should be permitted to come to the Lord's table and to be communicants without professing saving faith in Christ. Jonathan Edwards had come to the conclusion that that was a dangerous liberty, that those who come to the Lord's table should be converted people and they should at least profess to possess Saving faith in Christ. You know, and Edwards knew, it's not our business infallibly to tell who's a real Christian. That wasn't the issue. But the issue was, should people be allowed to come who make no profession of saving faith in Christ? Edwards disagreed with his grandfather. I told you his grandfather had been minister there for over 60 years. He was a legend. And all the grandfather's children and cousins and grandchildren were all around. The idea that Jonathan Edwards would contradict his grandfather's practice was unthinkable. So a great furore arose in the congregation. And now one of his cousins was a member of the congregation, Joseph Hawley, and he took a leading part in opposition. It all came to a head, as some of you will be hearing this afternoon, in the summer of 1750, when... Edwards was voted out of his congregation that he'd served for 23 years. Majority of the male members, 230 of them, voted for his dismissal. 23 23 voted against his dismissal. The women, let it be said to their honor, were not voting members. But in all truth, it's doubtful if it would have made any real difference. So at 46 years of age, Edwards suddenly came to an end of his work. He said, writing to a friend, I am now, as it were, thrown upon the whole wide ocean of the world and know not what will become of me and my numerous chargeable family. No financial arrangements for him were made for a year was nothing fixed or definite, he had some engagements. Then after a year had passed, he took up the work in the tiny village of Stockbridge on the edge of the wilderness, just over 40 miles from Northampton, the only church that had expressed interest in him, and it had only 12 families in the membership. One thing that drew Edwards to Stockbridge is the fact that Indian people were resident nearby and that an Indian school had been started there. And so Edwards in 1751 settles with his family in Stockbridge. Must hasten over these years. uh, Too much to go into any detail. He went there expecting a haven of peace. Not quite sure why he did expect a haven of peace because... Members of the Williams family were also in Stockbridge. Um, I suppose they had been genial enough when he was called there, but very quickly the old prejudice and opposition came up, and for three years there was another sad struggle. This time the congregation sided with Edwards, and so did the Indian people who loved him. And in 1754, after three years, the Williams gave up in Stockbridge, and uh, removed it wasn't the end of difficulties he had financial problems the next year 1755 the outbreak of war with france the whole frontier became a danger point attacks from the indians the french of course used the indians uh, to fight the new england settlers we have a description by one of edward's daughters esther who meanwhile had married Aaron Burr, the president of the College of New Jersey at Princeton. She had married him about 1752. She came to visit her parents in 1756. She describes what it was like on the frontier. A sense of danger, concern. She describes how her father calmed her and helped her. It's a a beautiful passage in her diary. But then the next year, and this is why I mention Esther, the next year... Esther's husband, Aaron Burr, died in 1757. And to Edwards' astonishment and pain, the trustees of the College of New Jersey called him to be president at Princeton. Edwards wasn't enthusiastic. He wrote to them and said, we have scarcely got over the trouble and damage sustained by our removal from Northampton council, friends were called to decide the issue. They decided he should go to Princeton. It's the only time we read of in Edward's life that he actually shed tears. But in January 1758, middle of winter, College of New Jersey, anxiously waiting for him, he left Stockbridge, leaving most of the family and Sarah behind. His last sermon in Stockbridge, here we have no continuing city but we seek one to come. And one of his daughters says that as he went out of the house and stood on the road, he turned around and he said, I commit you to God. Next month, when he was in Princeton, February, there was smallpox in the town and he took an inoculation against it. The inoculation went wrong and the result was that Edwards died on March the 22nd, 17. 58, just before he died at the age of 54. He said to one of his daughters who was with him, It seems to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife. And as to my children, you are now like to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you to seek a father that will never fail you. Sixteen days later, his daughter Esther died. Sarah hastened down from Stockbridge to look after the two orphan children that Esther had, and she died the same year, October 1758, to be buried beside her husband at Princeton. Now, a little about the man, just a little. What kind of man was he? Well, we've three sources of information. First, from the friends who knew him, a word or two. John uh, George Whitfield said, A solid, excellent Christian. I think I have not seen his like in New England. Another man who visited the home in Northampton said, A sweeter couple I have not yet seen. most agreeable family I was ever acquainted with. He was tall like his sisters, took exercise, horse riding, wood chopping in winter. He was, by temperament, retiring, Reserved, He enjoyed cheerful conversation, but he was perhaps a little slow to engage in such conversation with strangers. When he died, one of his friends wrote, always steady, calm, serene. As he lived cheerfully, resigned to the will of heaven, so he died. And then there are Edward's writings which give us a view of him too. Not that he spoke about himself. I don't think there's a sermon of Edwards in which he ever referred to himself. But he had a diary kept early in life, and you know his resolutions. For Jonathan Edwards, friendship with God was the great purpose of redemption. More communion with God. More holiness of life. If we were to ask, what particular grace did he most aspire after? I think there might be a case for arguing that it was the grace of joy. Certainly he held that communion with God is the highest kind of pleasure that can possibly be enjoyed by the creature. In his early sermons at New York, you see a young man overflowing with spiritual happiness. When he was 19 in New York, he says in a sermon that it's a tendency of godliness to maintain always a clear sunshine of joy and comfort in it. And that was his experience at that time. But I have to tell you that while he always regarded joy as the most important part of the Christian life, he came to see that it's not to be taken as an accurate measure of growth in grace because God has other things to teach us. And 37 years after he wrote about a clear sunshine of joy always, he wrote this to his daughter Esther. God will never fail those who trust in him. But don't be surprised or think some strange thing has happened to you. If after this, she had had some spiritual blessing, if after this clouds of darkness should return, perpetual sunshine is not usual in this world, even to God's true saints. So if joy wasn't the preeminent grace for Edwards, what was the preeminent grace? And I think there is no doubt about it. It was the grace of love. All creature holiness, he says, consists essentially, essentially in love to God and to other creatures love was the growing theme and passion of his life one of the books that should be there is called Charity and Its Fruits Love and Its Fruits exposition of 1 Corinthians 13 it takes you right to the heart of Jonathan Edwards sure proof of regeneration is that saints love God for himself but Edwards speaking personally spoke of a little spark of divine love, a little spark. His great ambition was for more. So here are two sources of information on Edwards. What his friends said about him, things that we can glean in his own writings, and then a third source that I'll have to mention very briefly, and I don't mind doing it briefly because you won't find it very edifying, but there were those who said he was a tyrant, he was stiff, he was obnoxious, he was implacable. I'm quoting words that were written by people at the time. Morose, some people called him. And so on. And there were those that said about his teaching, he would not admit any person into heaven, but those that agree fully with his sentiments. He belonged to a school, belonged to a school that lived in gloomy caves of superstition. Well, I can't take time to deal with those, but you know, the explanation for those remarks, I don't think is in the 18th century. It's actually in the Bible. There is, Edward says, a great enmity in the heart of man against vital religion. And while Edwards wasn't without faults, certainly, the hostility to him then and since, in some quarters, I don't question, is bound up with the real issue that we're always fighting, and that is supernaturalism against naturalism. The world does not like the idea that we are sinners dependent on divine grace. And the truth is that Edwards, far from being a mere traditionalist, and this is what people omit to understand, actually he was on the side of the critics of his theology when he was a young man. He tells us, from my childhood up, my mind was wont to be full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom he would to eternal life. It used to appear a horrible doctrine to me. Then he says, in a way he couldn't understand at the time, there came a wonderful alteration in my mind with respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. He now says he had a delightful conviction of its truth and it came by an extraordinary influence of God's spirit. I must just add that you shouldn't interpret my remarks to mean that Edwards thought that all his critics and opponents were not Christians at all. He didn't think like that. He was genuinely full of charity himself, and I think part of the most moving section of his life is the way that he deals so tenderly Not simply with the congregation at Northampton, but with relatives and others who were decidedly unfriendly to him. Now, legacies. The legacies. Three legacies. The first, Edwards has left us an invaluable witness to the nature of true Christian experience. And this, I think, is a key to understanding his life. Why, why did God permit this good man to experience such disappointments, such difficulties, such setbacks? And I believe that God permitted those circumstances to lead his servant to write for the benefit of the church in later ages. In other words the problems that he faced were all connected with the nature of real religion. How do you distinguish it from false? And Edward's experience brought him into that situation where this became a focus of his attention. The book, Treaties Concerning Religious Affections, is the book that deals with that so fully can I try and tell you what he means by affections quickly Edward says that we are made up of two parts basically our mind and our will our mind perceives things and understands things and our will is that part that inclines us or disinclines us by our will we love or we hate Uh, By our will, we desire or we resist. And he says that when the will is in vigorous exercise, that's what he refers to as affections, zeal, love, and so on, are affections. And the great point of his book, The Religious Affections, is to say that you don't tell a Christian simply by what they know, That's speculative knowledge, essential though that is. But how do their wills incline? What are their affections? In other words, he deals with what is a real conversion. And this is the sort of thing he says. How do we tell a real conversion? Well, it's not whether or not the person has had conviction of sin or not. People can have conviction of sin and never be regenerate. It is not whether conversion is fast, speedy stony ground hearers receive the word immediately it is not whether, when people profess to be conver- converted, they have physical phenomena, they tremble or weep no, Felix trembled. It is none of these things. The real evidence of conversion is the presence of regeneration, and regeneration is a change of nature a new life. There are many, he says, who think themselves born again that have never experienced any change of nature at all. They haven't had one new principle added. They think themselves made renewed in the whole man and they have never had one finger renewed if I may use that expression. They that are truly converted are new men, new creatures, new not only within but without They are sanctified throughout. All things are passed away. They have new hearts and new eyes, new ears, new tongues, new hands, new feet. They walk in newness of life and they continue to do so to the end of life. And the essence of regeneration is the restoration of the life of God in the soul. And that means a regenerate person is a God-centered person. A regenerate person is a person who worships God, who lives for God, who admires God, who loves God. That's what regeneration does. And so his argument is, the affections show the reality of regeneration. And there is one thing that goes with that. If a man or woman has become God-centered, it's sure but increasingly they're going to be humble people. A humble spirit, he says, leads Christians to look upon themselves as but little children in grace and their attainments to be but the attainments of babes in Christ and are astonished and ashamed of their low degrees of love and thankfulness and their little knowledge of God. So Edwards left the church this, this legacy that conversion is a real thing and the church members should be converted people and he not only taught this but as I've told you he suffered for it. He could have gone on living comfortably all his days at Northampton if he hadn't been faithful to the truth. Professor of Princeton some years ago said Jonathan Edwards changed what I may call the center of thought in American theological thinking. No one but a man of genius could have made this change of emphasis so potent a fact in American church history. And what was the change? More than to any other man, to Edwards is due the importance which in American Christianity is attributed to the conscious experience of the penitent sinner as he passes into the membership of the invisible church doctrine of conversion was brought back into the center and if I can put my hand on it I wanted to give you a little quotation Uh, here it is it's from last week's newspaper in in Northampton, Massachusetts October the 3rd and sad to say it's by the minister of the Edwards Church in Northampton and he said talking about commemorating Edwards that this was the thing that uh, disturbed him and worried him the tendency by Edwards followers to divide people into categories of saved and unsaved can't think in terms of categories of saved and unsaved. well that is the issue and Edwards Edwards has passed down that legacy to us. Second legacy briefly is this. Edwards has given us a framework in which to understand history and the future. When Winston Churchill was dying some 50 years ago, he said, I am bewildered by the world. The confusion is terrible. And that confusion today is even in our churches. You know, various schools of prophecy have arisen and then declined, passed away. And there are Christians today who really doubt whether God is in control of history. I say, Edwards gives us a framework. Now, I'm not arguing that all Edwards' views on unfulfilled prophecy are to be followed. Personally, I think he was mistaken in the way he handled the book of Revelation. He handled it as a, Sequence of history that we can find, a sort of time chart, and we find where we are in it. But, but, this is the big thing. As Edwards looked at the whole Word of God and the promises of God, he had this irresistible conviction that God had great and glorious things to do. And he believed that because the Scriptures say, He, Jesus, shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. The father says to the son, ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Then he read in Romans chapter 11, would not have you to be ignorant brethren. Blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles shall come in. And then, know the passages. Passages in scripture that don't lead us to wring our hands in despair, but to believe that God is leading forward his work and that the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Edward says, the veil now cast over the greater part of the world will be taken away and it may be hoped that many of the Negroes and Indians will be divines and excellent books will be published in Africa and in Ethiopia, in Turkey and in other now barbarous countries. Brighter days are going to come. And how are they going to come? Not by social and political work. Not by education. Not by scholarship. Preeminently. By the outpouring of the Spirit of God and prayer. What Edwards had seen of God's power with the preaching of the word, he believed the world would yet see in a more extensive way than they had ever seen. Now, I have to throw in something here, terrible to miss this out. When he still lived at Northampton, on May the 28th, 1747, a young man of 29 years of age arrived in the yard on his horse. He had come from four years' missionary work amongst the Indians, often living with little food, with no shelter. Only once in four years did any white person make a journey to visit him sometimes he traveled up to 4000 miles in a year amongst indian people for over 2 years he'd met solid indifference until in august of 1745 2 years earlier at crosswick song in new jersey there had been a remarkable movement of the spirit of god among indian people who he describes as previously worshipping devils and dumb idols. The power of God seemed to descend, he says, upon them. And in a short time, an Indian camp became, he said, an assembly of Christians, where there is so much of the presence of God and of brotherly love. His name, of course, was David Brainard. Two years later, he rode back to New England, His own parents were dead and he was dying of tuberculosis. He arrived at the parsonage in Northampton. As perhaps you know, parsonages in those days acted as motels and as hospitals and all kinds of things. There was already one minister in the parsonage who was ill. Sarah gladly welcomes this young man, David Brainard. He lived just to the October of that year and died in Northampton. This is a remarkable thing. When he came on his horse, he had next to nothing with him. But what he did have was amazingly important. He had his journals and his diary. And before he died, he committed these to Jonathan Edwards. And as Edwards read them, he was persuaded that here was material that the world had to read. And so in 1749, two years later, Edwards published the first full missionary biography ever published, The Life of the Late Reverend Mr. David Brainard. And that book showed people that the gospel could go into any stronghold of Satan and by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, strongholds would be cast down. It was read far and wide. William Carey read it. Henry Martin read it. It was carried to India and to China and around the world. There's a direct link between Edwards in this difficult time in Northampton and the beginning of the great missionary movement of the 1790s. So I want to throw in the point that reading Edwards doesn't make men academics or scholastics. To read Edwards is really to gain a missionary spirit, to gain an evangelistic burden. That is why this conference is being held in these days. Now, another thought quickly here. I mustn't give you the impression that Edwards was taken up with unfulfilled prophecy. He did think it was important, but not the most important thing. He knew that whether he lived to see another revival or not, Eternity was at hand. When he preached his last sermon as he was dismissed in Northampton, it was on the text in 2 Corinthians 1.14. As you have acknowledged us in part that we are your rejoicing, even are ye also ours in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he preached about. Didn't condemn them for dismissing him. Didn't criticize them. Pointed them to the day when we'll, we'll be gathered at the footstool of Christ. Eternity is the great thing. You know, if you take eternity out of Edward's life, you could read it as a story of little success, a lot of disappointment. It said when he died, most of the American papers only gave him one sentence. Many of his books weren't read. He left a great church for a tiny church in a corner of New England. Was it a failure? No. Edward says, I acted against all influence of worldly interest because I greatly feared to offend God. In other words, he was living for eternity. The last legacy, briefly, is this. It's already been spoken of and will be spoken of further. Edwards has left us a call To cease from looking to men and to look to God. If you ask Jonathan Edwards, what is the greatest danger for the evangelical church? He would say it is the danger of pride. It was pride that brought the Northampton church down. It was pride that led the 18th century to think that they had reached what they called the Enlightenment. Pride is the greatest of all temptations and the most subtle. Scholarship is good. Orthodoxy is good. Large congregations are good. But you know, pride can ruin all these things. Ministers can idolize congregations. Congregations can idolize ministers. Pride in any form destroys, mars the work of God. The scripture says, cease from man. Our Lord said, beware of man. The Bible says, what is man? And the answer it gives is this. I give it to you in Edwards' words. He says, man is a leaf, a leaf driven by the wind, poor dust, a shadow, a nothing. And of himself, he says, he was an empty helpless creature of small account and needing God's help in everything so there's one text above all others that summarizes Edward's life whatsoever ye do whether ye eat or drink whatsoever ye do do all to the glory of God everything that God gives us all that we are all that we ever can be all grace all redemption all revival is all given that we might be humbled and that God would be all in all. And so, my friends, whatever you and I or our churches face in the future, whether brighter days or it may be harder days, there is one thing absolutely certain and that is God has to be glorified and we have to say not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. And the more we do that, the closer we'll come to that great multitude in heaven who, we read, say, blessing and honor and glory and power, thanksgiving and might. Be unto him that sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, we thank thee that we can draw near in the name of thy Son, that by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Thou hast laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Lord, help us today to seek thee. May we not in all the busyness of these hours we are enjoying together. May we not fail first to seek thee and to honour Thee, and help us, O God, that we may so know Thee, that we will see how utterly needy and poor we are. Help us to grow in grace. Help us to love Thee. Continue with us, we pray today, in all our meetings and conversations together. We thank Thee for this conference. We thank Thee for those into whose hearts Thou didst put this vision. We pray, Lord, that great good will be done in our individual lives in our churches in thy kingdom far and wide we ask with the pardon of our sins giving thanks to thee for all things in jesus name amen